Welcome to the Dr. Mudgill Podcast. I'm Dr. Mudgill. Through this podcast, I will be sharing stories that I find personally inspiring and that I know will inspire you too. In this podcast, I speak with Dennis Malali. Dennis Malali is a career New York City bartender and is currently the head bartender at Otto Enoteca in Greenwich Village. I've gotten to know Dennis well over the past 10 or so years, and he's got a great story, which I know you're going to love. Well, I'm super, super psyched to have Dennis Mullally here for my podcast. Um, I've known Dennis for, I mean, it's been probably over a decade. Um, Dennis is the head bartender at Otto Enoteca, which is the quote-unquote casual Mario Batali restaurant in the neighborhood where my office is. And uh, there was a time when I first started my practice that I was literally living in my office. and Actually, I, you were living at Otto's. Yeah, and I would go to Otto almost three nights a week to have dinner. That was back when I was about 35 pounds heavier than I am now. Uh, but I got to know Dennis, you know, pretty well. And, you know, it's to me, like Dennis kind of has like this classic New York City story. You know, he's uh, I mean, I, I know you've probably done things before you were bartending, but as, as long as I've known you, you were bartending. And I think you were bartending for a long time before I knew you. I was actually supposed to teach high school history when I was going to college. Um, then I found that maybe I had a little bit of skill at standing behind the bar and listening to people or talking to people. It also was one of those things that it seemed like the first job that I wanted uh, was simply because everybody, the staff was going home with who I wanted to go home with. <laughs> and I looked at the fellow who was running the place and I said, listen, I want to try this. I want to do, and he looked at me and he said, you're out of your mind. You're going to, you'll do it for one day. You'll get tired of it. It'll be grimy. It'll be dirty. It'll be ugly. It, I said, no, if, I, if you don't give me it, I was like a nine-year-old. If you don't let me do this, I'm, gonna, I'm never coming back. And he said, okay. So he placated me thinking I would walk out the door. Surprisingly, I sort of found that I maybe had a little bit of skill. It also, one of those things, and you've known me for the 10 years, you would never think that young Mr. Mullally was ever introverted or had a huge inferiority streak, which I did, which... People I say that to wow. now are like, who are you, a different so person? So when was this? Was this when you were in college? This would have been in that early 1971, two, three. A couple of years before I was on the planet. Actually, the year, if it was 72, the year my wife was born. Oh, wow. Wow. Where were you bartending at that time? I was a young waiter bartender at a place called the Red Garter, which believe it or not, back in 1972, three, four, there were two banjo nightclubs. In the city of New York. One was the Red Garter, one was your father's mustache. I managed to work in both of them. It's like bluegrass, like a bluegrass bar? Not even that, just banjos, uh, slide trombones, washboard. Oh, it's like New Orleans style. We actually had a club in New Orleans, which one of the interesting things of when you, when Mardi Gras came along, uh, instead of hiring a bunch of new people down in New Orleans, what they did was they sent word out to all of the additional clubs because at that point, there were probably about eight of them in the States. And they said, okay, I need uh, six bartenders, 20 waiters, this, this, this. And what you did, you made your way down there. They helped you with, if you got gas money, things like that. And you also wound up sleeping in the restaurant above that in a sort of little barracks place. But you were right on Bourbon Street. Wow. And so in 1974, I think I was down there. My shift started at 10 o'clock at night and ended at 5 o'clock in the morning, which, of course, what do you do then? You go out and you get a couple of cans of Dixie and some red beans and rice. And then you retire up to the balcony and, f- like, look for 
perhaps some young ladies who may be not wearing all their clothes at that hour of the morning and get some beads thrown at you and the world could not have been a better place for a, at that point, 23-year-old Mr. Malone. Wow, that's, uh, well, I wanna, I wanna go way back before then. Um, we're gonna get to all, of course, all the juicy details of your years <laughs> bartending in New York City and New Orleans and who knows where else. But were you born in New York City? Born in New York in March 3rd, 1951, where there was Women's Hospital up by Washington Heights. Yeah. We did a year in Manhattan, then a year or two in the Bronx, then Brooklyn, and then Queens. Then I moved to the West Village. But um, so every bar other than Staten Island. Other than Staten Island. And actually, the one time in Staten Island, there was a young nursing student I was dating in about 1972 or three. And we took the ferry back to her parents' house, and I am sure, getting off the ferry, I saw goats. And these were not goats like to like help a golf course trim their grass. These were just goats wandering around, and Mr. Mullally knew that probably Staten Island was not the borough for him. Was that your first and last time in Staten Island? Uh, no, I think that I have been there maybe twice since. And it's a lovely place. It's just probably not for me. So as not to offend any of the Staten Island Not listeners. at all. I think that there are lovely people who live there. So you started out um, in Manhattan, went to the Bronx. Did you was, Were your formative years predominantly in Queens? Brooklyn and Queens. Um, but part of that was always based on, these days you find neighborhoods being gentrified and you have coffee shops and you have stuff. Back then it was termed changing neighborhoods, but it was the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, there were lots of times in the young Dennis Mullally age where you had a mayonnaise sandwich for lunch um, mm-hmm. because the dollar signs were not really there. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when we lived in East New York as like a five or six year old, they still had push carts out in the street. So you could, instead of walking over to the lovely Union Square Market now, there were fellows selling you heads of cabbage or lettuce, which there were also times that you would find certain teenagers who would hijack some of them and use them for stuff to throw at people in sort of gang fights and things like that. Uh, East New York now is still like a pretty rough area. I grew up pretty close to that. I was grew up in Stark City, which was like, you know, just, I guess, east of East New York. We were on Alabama Avenue, I believe. Was it a rough neighborhood back then? Um, I think, but then again, at that three, four, five, six, I didn't know. Right. That's all the same. Yeah. Do you have a big family? Do you have a lot of siblings? I have one sister who is eight years younger, um, who I love dearly, but we are completely different animals. And she, it was just the two of you? Just the two of us. So when um, you were in East New York, you were six or seven years old. She wasn't even born yet. Not even born. When we moved to that, to Ridgewood, which was that sort of Brooklyn, Queens border. Was that an Irish neighborhood back then? I mean, there's tons of Irish pubs in that area uh, now. It's, still. It was Irish, Italian. Actually, the interesting part is that we moved to Glendale, which was that beginning of Queens. Like it's Long Island, essentially, right? Um, well, that whole thing. I mean, Brooklyn, Queens is Long Island. Right. Um, but the last of the German Bund rallies was yeah. in that Glendale area. Um, so I, as the Irish-Italian kid, because I always thought that I was Irish-Italian when actually I was Irish and Puerto Rican since my mom had been adopted by Italians. But nobody oh, is that bothered, right? Yeah, nobody bothered to tell me that until huh. I was like seven, eight, nine years old. Um, Classic New York story again. But it's one of those that if you weren't German, you were sort of considered who are you? You're some yeah. minority group who just came in here. Even. Right. The other part of it that, in terms of what your business is, when that skin tone of mine was still sort of tight and youthful, 
the eyes had more of an almond look to them. So I actually had at nine or so, some kid walk up to me and say, you Chinese? Wow. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Who are you? Get it. Why did we move into this neighborhood? I hate it here. Yeah. And then where'd you go from there? Uh, stayed in Glendale for elementary and high school. Um, wound up going to St. Francis Prep in Williamsburg okay. um, before Williamsburg became the yeah. classically chic. So Williamsburg was a probably, it was like a very Polish neighborhood, right? It was like Polish, the... Italian, some Irish. Gotcha. Um, and then if you went to the south side of Williamsburg, it was primarily Hispanic. Okay. It's amazing, I mean, how sort of um, isolated the city was. Like, you know, each neighborhood was basically a different ethnic group. Like, you know, kind of like how now like Jackson Heights is like the Indian neighborhood, mm-hmm. even though it's not quite what it used to be when I was growing up. But like you said, like, you know, not being the German kid living in Glendale, it's like, you know, you weren't part of the majority, which is just so fascinating to me because someone like myself who's Indian, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, I grew up in a neighborhood, I was like the only kid with brown skin. Right. And I had my own issues because of that, you know, in the South Shore Long Island. It's amazing how divided, like, you know, even, like for me, everyone else was basically white, right? And even amongst the different, you know, uh, nationalities of, you know, German, Italian. Oh, yeah. Know. It, you know, in those early years of, and I went to Queens College because mm-hmm. I decided that coming out of Villanova um, and owing $12,000, right. which sounds so ridiculous now, yeah. you can't get a credit for $12,000. Yeah. I didn't want to do that. But I got a real education in Queens. But one of those sociology classes was there's always that misconception of that melting pot. Everybody blends together. Right. It's the quilt. Right. It's like my people this live here, here. Your people live there. We did that. Now there was some on that fringe where, okay, the Irish kids and the Jewish kids who played basketball together, that's what they did. Right. The Jewish kids and the Italian kids in Canarsie, that's what they did together. The Irish kids and the there was always that sort of overlap based either on Sports, uh, music, somebody you were looking to date, right? something like that. But as you say, there you had that instance of everybody sort of looked alike. Right. But you were still, in some ways, different. Right. Um, but yeah, that other end of it where all of a sudden you, know, you noticeably look different. And there is that, do I really fit in here? I'm supposed to fit in here. This is where we're all supposed to be, right? Which, unfortunately, some of that stuff going on right now is not so good. Well, I mean, if you listen, if you were born in 1951, that means you were a teenager, like, during the peak of, like, a, you know, the Black Revolution and all these, you know, racial... 60s were an interesting time. And you were, like, you're not, you were, under, you were 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, like, you know, sort of at the peak of developing your beliefs and stuff. I mean, what was that like in New York at that time? It was, you know, it's one of those things of... Revisionist history is always something interesting. Um, right now, I can't have a real conversation with that daughter of mine and without getting into an argument of like, do we remove Robert E. Lee's statue or is George Washington and Thomas Jefferson really the heroes that we thought they were based right. on some of the other things? Sure. Um, there were kids I played ball with who were black. Right. Um, my father, who was... Would you guys hang out together, though, outside of basketball? Yeah. Yeah, so it's just neighborhood you, kids. You go to, when you're there, especially St. Francis was one of those, if not a commuter school, but based on where it was in Brooklyn, everybody took the subway. 
So you were, you know, walking onto the train with your duffel bag that had your football gear, and there were five, six of us, or two, right. three of us, but they were generally either mixed race. Right. Um, it was still when some of the Hispanic kids, you know, were not all Mexican kids. They were either Dominican right. or Puerto Rican or something right. like that. But it was, you know, there were lots of guys named Cahill or Mulally or Rodriguez right. or whatever who played on those same teams. Um, there were certain neighborhoods you knew you didn't go into. Um, there were... Just because there were rough neighborhoods. Well, back then also, if you take it into, say, when I started Tendon Bar in the 70s and mid-70s, New York, in terms of how we knew it, was sort of 1st Avenue to 8th Avenue, um, Houston Street to 86th Street. Everything else was Alphabet. different. Alphabet City was Alphabet City. Right. Soho was just some bunch of warehouses that right. maybe some people started going to. Harlem was Harlem, and I remember Harlem burning. Um, there's a lot of stuff that you're around as a kid growing up that you think it's not right, but again, there's a lot of stuff that you... And not to be cross-referenced, like I was taught a certain way, like these right. people are this or this. But um, I knew the kids I played ball with. I knew the kids I hung around with. They looked different than me, but they were still the kids who were right. in the same classroom that I was in. Um, and that father of mine, who was that sort of longshoreman, had certain beliefs. Is that what he did? He, he was. He was a longshoreman and a checker, which means he was in one of the two of the worst unions of all time, which is why I hate unions. Because um, they sort of breed mediocrity, I think. They were needed because management at that point was a horrible thing right, as well. Right, exploitive, yeah. Um, but why was the union so bad? Uh, like that particular union? You know that when I attend bar, there is no such thing as that's not my job. Yeah. Go into a union shop and try and do something. That's not your job, kid. You don't do that. Uh, one of the things I almost wound up doing was getting my working papers at 16. And it was just as the last union contract when the peers were already obsolete uh, that would have guaranteed me money just from going in. We'll, we'll do the story of what senior Mr. Mullally would do. You would badge into the hall where everybody met. And if they called out, okay, Mullally go to Pier 40, uh, Jones is going to 40, Watson's going to 40. None of those guys were in the hall. What you did, you got on the phone and you called them and say, okay, get your backside over to Pier 40, we had a job. Otherwise, you just got paid for doing nothing. That was like that no-show situation, right? It's like all of a sudden From you Sopranos, see the construction in New York City where you got 14 guys standing around, two guys with a shovel, and one guy's with a stop and slow down sign. Seems to be a lot of people doing stuff for right. doing nothing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, things haven't changed that much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So your dad was a longshoreman. Was you, would you say your dad was like um, not very liberal? I would say that he was conservative, but that conservative that used to be understanding. Uh, again, people that he worked with, there were, back then the term would be, there were black guys who worked in the union. There were black guys in terms of that African-American person who also became known as sandhogs, the ones who dug the tunnels out for the subway mm -hmm. and stuff like that. 
they were some of the first unions that were integrated. There's like a whole documentary about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, because one, it was that misconception that the African-American guys, based on who they were, could handle the humidity and the heat down in the tunnels. But those were some of the first overlaps of where you actually had white guys and black guys working together. Right. My father had that term where it was sort of like, you know, there are black men who are black men. And there are others, and he would use a certain word, who were that. Um, the interesting concept now is that with me at 67, that gentle age, and with that N-word being thrown around by people of color, right. I never understood, okay, why? And I talked to one of my Hispanic kids that worked about that. I said, you can sort of get away with saying that, but I can't. He said, no, you can't. The clearest definition I got was after Bill Maher opened his mouth with the N-word was when, I believe it was Ice, Ice Cube, Ice Cube, somebody went on the show and said, this is why you can't do it. You know, it's a word that has been used against us. It's like a knife, man. And you can use it as a weapon or you can use it as a tool. It's been used as a weapon against us by white people. And... We're not gonna let that happen again by nobody because it's not cool. Because that term was always used to denigrate who we were, right. but now we have adopted that term as an empowerment for term. ourselves. So you as an outsider can't do it, which I think that's what my father had said to me years ago of, you'll find people of all races, all stuff who are legitimate people who are hardworking, who are smart, who are just looking to make right for their family. And then you'll have those others who whatever slang word or slur you want to do, right. whether it's donkey, whether it's want, whether it's this, who will always look to take advantage of whatever and be that lazy person that those other terms connote. Right. He also was that interesting aspect of in his conservative and he was for a time in World War II on a destroyer escort um, when Vietnam came along and in his mind this was probably around 68 so I would have been 17 18 right. going oh, you're in. up for the draft I could have been going in he looked at me and he said if you don't want to go you don't have to go and of course I looked at him like are you the same person who raised me who are you and his reasoning was they don't want to win this or they're not trying to win it and why am I going to lose my kid on something that doesn't matter? So for all of those times of me wanting to just punch him in the head over, for you know, just the normal, I'm growing right. up, he's the male figure in the house, right. to that, I guess my father actually loved me right. and wanted me to be okay. It's how surprising some of those times when you least expect something, something or right. someone will just turn. That's like the story of life, man. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's interesting, just going back to what you were speaking to earlier, um, I just like randomly was reading this like quote by Nelson Mandela today about like, no one's taught, like, you know, we're all the same on the inside, mm -hmm. right? So no one's like taught to hate someone of whatever, you know, someone who's Jewish or someone who's black or someone who's Indian or someone who's Asian. You know, no one's born like that. Those are all things that are taught or learned, you know? And it's such a, if you really think about that, it's crazy, man, right? Like it's... Nurture nature. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing. Um, you know, wild beasts, there are some predatory instincts that go on, um, but that predatory in that fact of we're mammals, we're animals, um, 
somebody has taken that blackboard that you hope to fill with just learning and warmth and stuff that will make you a better person and twisted it into that, no, these people or this person is bad. They're your enemy. Uh, here's why they're your enemy. And or here's why even hurting them is not a bad thing because they are they don't deserve to be here. That's unbelievable. Right? Again, going back to Queens College, Saul Lutnick in one of my history classes was talking about people get the government they deserve. And he was talking about Nazi Germany. We unfortunately have the government that we deserve right now with 40% of the people voting and things that are going on in the media and even things that are going on that don't even make the media attention. Scary times. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a topic for a separate old, topic podcast. As my as my wife and daughter would say, that's coming from an old yeah. white guy. Yeah, who's like pretty liberal, pretty liberal guy. So so you went to Queens College, you studied history, yep. your plan was to teach high school history. I was supposed to teach high school history. I wanted from reading a separate... Did you have a master's in like graduate, like master's in no education? No master's, or? just a BA because when I, I was on that six-year program at Queens because part of it was I was working to get three school. days a week, tending bar or waiting tables. So this is when you were working at the... This the was... Bedroom, bar? This was from um, the Red Garter and then form uh, your father's mustache. But then my first real waiting job in the West Village itself was at a place called Jimmy Days. Jimmy Days was on the corner of Barrow and West 4th Street, and it was that perfect sort of place to grow up doing what I do. There were a couple of characters who actually taught me how to do this. Um, like what did they teach you? Like what is the art? The because it is an art, like, oh, you know. It is, but the situation is, my two kids, when they were nine or ten, could mechanically do everything I can do if they could reach something. I mean, a gorilla could do this, but the gorilla has to be able to get the people to give them a reason to come back. They've got to be able to talk to them. They've got to be able to listen to them. They've got to be able to create an atmosphere where even if the fellow or the person behind the bar is busy and doesn't have all that much time to pay for them, pay to them, that there are other reasons that they come in, whether it's the comfort level, whether it's the people who are at the bar also right. who, it's like playing ball. You don't all have to get along. You don't right. have to all be the same. Matter of fact, it's worse if you are all the same. Back then, if you ran a cop bar, if you ran a Wall Street broker bar, if you did that, you want that mix of people because every now and then, society goes in one way, the market goes in one way, and you could have a great broker bar and all of a sudden, all those guys are out of work because the depression just hit. Right. Um, so it's that gift of being able to listen to people, being able to find something to talk to people about, and getting those people to be comfortable next to each other, where you also have to recognize when somebody comes in, you have 5,000 other places to go in New York City. Right. Give them a reason to come back. Just remember somebody's name. I'm, when we work our Saturday or Sunday afternoons, I know 40 to 65% of the people by name, face, or drink. Right. Yeah. It makes them feel reassured that this is a place they can bring people. And yeah. that's the way you, you work it so that one person brings two, brings four, brings ten, and you wind up staying in business for 15 years. What's the incentive? Like, uh, obviously, I mean, I'm going to tell you about my experience out of it. We'll get into that in, in a little bit. But what's, what incentivizes, incentivizes you to, to like, develop that kind of atmosphere. I mean, it's not like, you know, it's not your bar. It right? is. 
I always, I always thought that it was. Well, and, see, that's the right attitude, but that's such a hard thing to oh, instill. In, you know, and, and you know, the, the crazy thing about Otto is I've been going there for a decade. The same exact bartenders have been there for 10 years. I sit at the bar. The same, I see the same faces sitting at the bar for a decade. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not always the same people, but I always recognize like one or two other people that yeah. are there. And, you know, we don't know each other. We've been sitting at the same place for 10 years, but we don't give each other a nod because we recognize each other, you know. Um, it's really something that's unremarkable. I mean, running a small business myself, I find that to be the single hardest thing to like have folks that are invested in the mission of what I'm trying to do in mm-hmm. my medical practice. Um, and you guys just seem to, it just works. I mean, and I've never seen anyone who's not there. I've only seen folks work up the ranks. Like Uriel was a bar back mm-hmm. and now he's a bartender. And there's yep. like this young kid who's there, who's like the bar back. I know he's going to like graduate to being a bartender, but John, Frank, you, like you guys are all have been there for, I mean, over 10 years. I mean, at least the 10 years that I've been going there. It's one of those things that, especially with, um, some of the Hispanic kids that we've had work in there as back waiters, bar backs who then go on to be waiters, bartenders, managers, psalms. Um, Some of the best feedback I've ever gotten is from some of those people who um, like what we do in terms of training people. Because you take these people, you treat them well, you you start off thinking they got a brain. Actually, one of the, the six things that Mulally requires, you have to be able to say, hello, goodbye, please, thank you, have a brain, bring a work ethic, and most people can't do three. Yeah. Um, what are the six things again? Let's go through Say, hello, one. goodbye, Yeah. please, thank you, Okay. bring a brain, Yeah. have a work ethic. Gotcha. Um, so we start off with that, that if I hire you, you're going to be expected to do that. And then it goes through the process of, I can be very difficult, but I will never humiliate you in front of people. I will hold you to certain standards, but because of those standards, you will grow. And I have enough weight in the restaurant community that if you suddenly decide you want to move somewhere, you want to do something, I can probably find you a job if you were one of Mr. Mullally's kids. Right. Um, it is that consistency that's the hardest part that even if I'm not there, it should feel the same. The right. product should be the same and your treatment should be the same. Yeah. That's the hard part because it's similar to you. You have a business that's run here. When you are not here, yeah. people come in, they expect to be treated that same way. Right. That's the hardest thing. And again, when you do it a year, three years, five years, 15 years, you're talking generations. And yeah. I mean, we've raised kids at Oto. I know. I saw a little girl sitting at the bar yeah. with her dad. Yep. You know, I thought that was like the most adorable thing because... 10, 12 years from now, she's going to be sitting at the bar with her friend. She's going to be tending a bar with me. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. The other thing I noticed about Otto, which I find so unique, is it's literally like the most erudite bartending staff. Like, you know, two of the guys I think are like Ivy League graduates, right? Like Frank went to Penn. Frank went to Penn. John went to Penn or Plum. Um, John, no, John went to Oneonta okay. upstate. I went to Queens. Um, it's also a smart bar. There are no TVs. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't have people just swilling beer and looking yeah, at the score news, of the game. Newspapers. They're newspapers. Yeah. There's conversation. People yeah. talk to each other. Yeah, totally. I always talk to someone. You know, it's amazing yeah. the conversations you can have. There. I mean, we used to have when Sam Shepard was still alive and when he was living above Oto at one fifth. If he had a show going on at the public theater, after Sam did a rehearsal, he would come over, and he'd be working on his notes or something. But Sam 
and the reason we don't call him Mr. Shepherd, Sam was Sam to us, um, would sit there and have a conversation with somebody. Somebody would sort of, not even if they knew who he was, but there would be all of a sudden this dialogue going on about whether, and it might not have even been theater or something like that. It might have been about horses because Sam had his farm uh, out in the Midwest. Right. Some other aspects of that. It was just, we look for interesting characters that yeah. there. We sort of try to cultivate those interesting characters. We will, I don't want to say tolerate or put up with some of those people who perhaps lack manners or something, but, you know, there was a different, from Animal Farm, all animals are equal, yeah, yeah. but some are a little more equal than others. You perhaps have a certain um, favored nation status there, along with some other people, but it's the way that it's supposed to run. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's such, you said this to me, it must have been like seven or eight years ago. You said that this is really is a neighborhood bar, you know, and it, it really is like, you know, a lot of, I see, you know, some of the NYU professors, like the same folks that come, yeah. and, you know, I'm a neighborhood guy. I'm there. And like I, like I said, you see the same faces all the time. It is very reassuring. Like it's a, it's a place where you go. I know. I mean, my favorite time to go is when you're there, obviously. Mm. but, but all, everyone is great. And, you know, everyone knows like what my preferences are that I like spicy food, you know, like, you want your pizza yeah. well done, right? That I like it well done. And maybe yeah. an occasional glass of red wine. Yeah. Yeah, um, and some Italian flags at the end mm -hmm. of the day. Uh, again, it's my, you know, my friends will joke, like, you like to just go to the same places over and over and over again. The truth is, I do, because I'm a creature of comfort. Like, after a long day of work, seeing a million patients, you know, you just want to, like, escape to a comfortable, familiar place. And, like, that, to me, is what auto is. Like, you know, I only want to sit at the bar when I'm right. there. And just want to veg out for like an hour after work and then head home and it's, there's nothing better, you know. We are one of those pl places that for the 15 years we were owned by fancy guys. We have a very fancy wine list, but at very reasonable prices. But we're probably one of the best five neighborhood bars in the city. Yeah. Um, what are the other four? Right now? Good question. Um, there's one place, uh, Peter McManus's on 7th Avenue, which has been there forever and which runs that same way. 7th and what? It's on 7th and 17th Street. Okay. 19th Street, something like that. But it's a situation where they've had sanitation workers, cops, firemen, brokers, fancy um, Chelsea people. It just works because they view it as you come in the door, you're treated well, you respond well, you leave, you come back again. That's the way the flow is supposed to be. Um, I would have to think. You don't have to name all five. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, know, I, know, I know they're out there. You'll tell me when I come to dinner mm -hmm. one day. Um, the, the other thing that you mentioned to me, and this was a long time ago, is you guys were all working somewhere else together, right? Or a bunch of you guys were working somewhere else together. We were at the Cub Room. Yeah, I, I remember that place. It we, changed to something else. But, we opened yeah. in 94. That was actually the first place or the first time I met Batali because he was the chef partner over at Poe, which was yeah. a small little restaurant yeah, on Cornelia Street. Yeah. He was a partner there at Poe? He was the chef partner with a fellow named, I think, Steve Crane. Oh, okay. And I was... So uh, that must have been when he was starting out. Right? Pretty much. Um, that was, I think, one of the first times he was in New York and doing something on his own. But I was his middle stop before he then went over to see James at Blue Ribbon till whatever hour of the morning Blue Ribbon decided to close. Right. So from the cover, who was at the cover? John Moore, uh, Frank Gaskin. Uh, those were 
occasionally, every now and then, I would get somebody who was a waiter who stopped by. There was a lady named Nancy Seltzer. Seltzer worked with me at uh, Cub Room as waiter, floor manager, and then later went on to Babo, and then went on to become partner at um, Terry Market, Terry Lodge, uh, within the group. Gotcha. Do you ever go to the other places, or you ever need to go to the other places, like cover at Babo? Or what we wind up doing is or... generally on Christmas Eve, Cindy and I will go to either um, Babo, Lupa, or Casamona. To hang out as patrons. Just to just yeah, yeah to have that dinner before. Uh, again, the only two days that we're really off on the holiday side is Thanksgiving and Christmas. And even she, because she's the pastry chef over at the Marlton Hotel, right. um, has to go in at some point in the morning just to make sure she's got product for the weekend. Gotcha. And how did you get? Did you guys meet through the restaurant business? Um, we met at position two at the bar. Uh, she was a patron. Um, she swears that we met further down the bar, but I just didn't notice. And then she started to come in and made the mistake of perhaps wanting to get to know Mr. Mullally. Um But then at some point, the interesting part, and she'll kill me for telling you this, but there was a time when the now Mrs. Mullally decided, you know, I don't think we can see each other anymore. And I was like, okay, well, we seem to be doing okay. Everything seems to be fine. Well, you know, it just, it's just not working. I said, all right. Then about two weeks later, I get a phone call that... Um, are you working tonight? And I was like, yeah. She, you know, we came in and it just wasn't any fun in the back room. So at that point, she started to come back to the bar. We started to date again. And at some later point, I looked at her and said, okay, which of your friends told you that I wasn't too old for you? Which I later find out was ah, one of her funny. best friends who did. Uh, we have now been married 10 years. Um, wow. Why she did that, I don't know, because she is so much smarter and so much <laughs> more than her husband is. That's always, that's always the case. Yep. That, that's the secret to a, a successful, strong marriage. I, I think. think. When you acknowledge that women are much smarter much smarter than guys. Oh, by and, far, uh, not even close. Yeah, but I, I could not agree with you more. Mm -hmm. and I'm sure my wife will appreciate me saying that. <laughs> it, is, it, it, is, it is the truth. So just take it, just to, to take it back just a little bit. Because, I mean, my fascination with this whole story is like, what happened from being like an English teacher to sort of being, a, I mean, I guess a career bart, would you say? Oh, career yeah, bartender? very much so. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, is that, that's like a, you guys are the only career bartenders I really know. It's one of those situations that, you know, early on in my life when I would look to apply for a life insurance policy, bartending was right up there with um, manual labor digging ditches in terms of how they thought of you as a risk right. to pay your bills. Um, then one of those interesting aspects I have worked, if you drew one line from Sheridan Square and made a radius around it, I have probably worked 45 years within a 12 bar radius of that's that. Amazing. So again, that's one of those things where the aspect of familiarity with people, because again, you're not moving to 86th Street and 3rd, you're right. not going to Battery Park, you're sort of in a central area right, where people a large you. number of those people are. Um, but it was... I've had the good fortune to work in five places in 45 years. Uh, there was a time when first wife and I were living, after Blair was born, living in New Jersey, and it was a very white banker broker town up in Ridgewood. 
And that's, was, a fancy, that's kind of a fancy-ish town. Oh, very much so. And there was one time where she went to one of those junior women's club meetings. And it was in that 87 mini depression where instead of her husband in the transient sort of world of restaurants and tending bar, there were eight seats at the table and six of the women out of the eight had husbands who were looking for a job just based on it. So I have been very lucky in terms of the places that I've worked, the longevity of what it is. And it's similar to, you can play the same, if you play golf, you can play the same golf course every day. But but just because you hit one shot a little different, it changes everything in what you do. You You must play golf. Uh, badly in Once Upon a Time before the last time I actually was on a driving range took a swing and then the next day my knee blew up so my clubs have been resting God, in man. the closet for that's a while. how my back feels right now yeah, yeah. Um, it's just that situation of I was not meant to sit in an office put me in front of a computer there better be a fantasy football program there because right. I'm useless for any of this stuff but in terms of that talking to people listening to people which once got me on a jury once when somebody said you're 10 bar you listen to people a lot don't you and i was like yeah we want him on the jury wow uh it's that thing where it suits who i am right but how did you know that like we know what how did you know i'm sure your parents when you were in your 20s like listen you got to get a like a quote-unquote real job and be a teacher one of those things well actually twofold one of those things when i was a kid probably 10 11 12 my father said, you know what one of the skills that I have, the real skill, I get along with people. I can talk to people. I can be, and I'm looking at him like, so? Who doesn't talk to me? Who did? And later on, I realized that's exactly what he was talking about. Yeah. I can talk to, whether it's you as a doctor, right. whether it's somebody who's just locked somebody up or somebody who's just taken somebody's garbage or somebody who's looking for the spot quote on what Brent Crude is going for. Um, and not a lot of people can yeah. and I also have that ability to I actually listen there are times I just want to shut you off but there are times that I will listen and some of that goes in um, the other part of it goes back to that early New York where you could actually do what I do and live really well in the city because in 1970 1980 I was paying $450 a month rent for a one yet was for flight walk up but a one-bedroom in the West Village on the corner of Bleecker and Barrow. Wow. Which probably, I mean, that building went co-op, which again leads to one of those stories of why Mr. Mulally should have, would have, could have done something yeah. back then. But you could, there was also that alternative lifestyle. You got out of school. I don't want to go to work in an office. Why do I want to go work in an office? Right. You, or a school. Yeah. You got to meet people. Um, you got to live well with meeting people. I mean, houses we used to rent out in East Hampton and Amagansett, you get a three, four bedroom house for ten to $12,000 for the full year, wow. not for two weeks in August. So back then, the timing again was good in terms of I was able to use those skills that I had in a job market where it paid what I was looking to make. Right. And I would work four nights a week. Right. Not 50 hours, four nights a week. Yeah. And be able to do all of that stuff while still going out and having the occasional drink and dinner right. and life was not so bad. Do you think that's cha- that's changed? Oh, it's the city is not the same. In 19, in the 70s, it was 
certainly not a safer city by any means. It was a date. It was like frankly a dangerous. I actually city, right? did not take an apartment. Somebody had there was a condo condo building on Barrow and Bedford that there was an apartment there that the price was right, and I turned it down because again working I was doing the vampire hours from eight o'clock at night till four o'clock in the morning, and two weeks before, somebody I knew had gotten knifed on the corner, and I was like I don't wow. think that Mr. Mullally wants to be coming home at five thirty over there. Wow. Uh, it was grimier. There was much more of a homeless situation right. out there, but it was fun. It was, you know, you look back on some of those shows that try and portray what the 70s were. It was grimy. CBGB's was going. Soho right. was just starting to become Soho. Yeah. Um, there was stuff and there was excitement and you could afford to live here and you didn't have 10,000 apartments just occupied by people who don't live here and are paying ridiculous dollar signs to do it. Yeah. And you're also getting to that situation where people who work in the city are being priced out of the city um, by those who don't live here. Right. I'm wondering. <laughs> yeah. And it's going to be one of those situations where, again, commercial rates and things like that. Uh, the fortunate part of Oto, when we took our 20-year lease, we still got in at a good number. But also the building had had difficulties in the past in terms of who was in there. Uh, what was there before Otto? In the 70s, it was a place called One Fifth, okay. which One Fifth was that place similar to the Odeon downtown that attracted the cast of um, Saturday Night Live, the original stuff of Saturday Night Live. Um, it's always been a, from that 70s, 80s period on, a building Jessica Lang lives there, Sam Shepard lives there, Barishnikov yeah. lives there. I mean, there's all sorts of people. Yeah. Jerry Orbeck always was coming in there. Um, then it became Clementine's in the mid-late 90s. And then it was empty because there was a certain portion of Clementine's when John Shank got screwed out of a deal, left as the chef, went out to Vegas, and then became the chef at the Bellagio. Um, where it was, okay, it's four o'clock in the morning, close the curtains and okay, let's see how much white powder we can do and yeah, how yeah. much alcohol we can do. But they were still fancy co-op apartments upstairs, so they right. got kind of tired at 6.30, 7 o'clock right. in the morning, people were rolling out it's of there raging, yeah. as they were going for work. And it used to be that you had the entrance into the restaurant, but you could also th walk through the main lobby at one fifth and go through the service door. Oh, is that right? So anybody who lived in the building also could like put their slippers on, put a bathrobe on, come down in the middle of the night and get a drink and go back up on the elevator. Oh, wow. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. So then it was empty, I guess, you know. It was stretch. empty for a little bit. Portale tried to put a restaurant in there, the chef from Gotham. And then Mario and Joe um, looked at space, had that concept of they wanted to do small plates, pizza. And at first it was just pizza and small plates. Then pasta came in because everybody realized, right. you're going to do this, you got to do it this way. Right. And the wine list, and that was us in the beginning of 03. So that, that brings me to my last question. You know, all of you guys are like basically better than some hundred years old. Oh. How do you guys know? I mean, is there a class you take or is it just like from doing it? Or, you know, I mean, it's, I, I, I love wine. Yeah. Uh, I would say I know very little about it. I mean, I know what I like and what I don't like. Mm -hmm. Like, you can put two glasses in front of me like you usually do, and I'll say, I like this one better than this right. one. Um, but that's just personal preference. I couldn't tell you anything about like the grapes or, but you got, you, every okay. wine, like, there's this grape, it's this from this it's, part of Italy. It's, it's part know. of the situation where um, Frank Askin, who I work with, is much better at wine than I am. 
but Frank, did he take classes in it? Frank, I think, just has always had that taste. I wound up, I took a class with Kevin's really down at Windows on the World in 1986. And it was a great class. It was one of those classes where I actually didn't not go to class because I wanted to watch the Red Sox and the Mets in the World Series. Wow. It was, I was going to miss the Bordeaux class. What are you, crazy? Um, but it was... That was 1986. So. Yeah, yeah. But it was that situation of having that class as a sort of foundation. Having Kevin say, you know what? Drink what you want to drink. This is not supposed to be a contest. It's not like... There are some people who use it as a way to impress people. There are some people who think that because of the bigger dollar sign, it's a better bottle of wine. Right. It's not necessarily true. Right. Which is, again, Frank loves Barolos and Brunellos. They are lost on me. I like Bright Fruit Southern. I like Hearty Rot Gut Northern. I want something that if we're making beef stew or spaghetti and meatballs is going to go along with it. I also don't like to pay the price of Tuscan and Piemonte. I like a bargain. It's just what Mr. Mulally right. is. Yeah. And who doesn't love? Yeah, but that whole idea of it's all repetitive. It's Catholic school. It's repetitive behavior. You try something. You try something. You try something. You try some different stuff. It'll give you sort of the framework of I kind of like this grape. I found. I kind of like this region. I found. Okay, so this is what I'm comfortable with. But let's try something out of our yeah. comfort zone, and we'll see if it's right for us. And there were times that there was one day I did one week. I did. Four 13 shifts in a row, something like that. And I would have my little Cortino of Mozart going downstairs with me. And nine out of those 13 days, it was right. On day 10, it was the same wine, the same stuff, same circumstances. It just wasn't right. And sometimes it just works that way. It's a subjective thing. Your taste yeah. is different than mine, is different than his, is different than his. You but, just go. But you're, you're as, right. I mean, I 100% agree and acknowledge that. It's, but it's more than that. Like you guys actually know a lot about all even the ones you don't like. You know about. I mean, is, does that translate into like French wines, California wines? If you give me, if you're putting Mr. Mulally on a desert island, I want white, white burgundies and I want California zins. That's what I like. That's what. Huh. If you give me those two, choices, I would never, I would never guess that's, that. That's what I want. But that again, problem. Um, California zins will hit you over the head based on the alcohol content. Yeah, and white burgundies. You better be, you better add a zero to the dollar sign that I make for a year for me to be able to pull Ford White Burgundies. Right. Unless Mario's paying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, man, I got to tell you, this was amazing. And I look forward to my dinner out tomorrow night. Done. And maybe lunch on Friday. We'll see. Mm -hmm. um, I know you're not going to be there tomorrow. So maybe we'll catch up <laughs> at lunch on Friday. And we can strategize about uh, fantasy football this weekend. Yes, we're not playing each other so we can talk no, about it. Exactly. And I'm not playing Cindy either. I wasn't allowed to talk to you about it mm -hmm. then either. Um, Dennis, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate having you in my life. And, you know, it's been a fun decade getting to know you. And you've fed me very well. I mean, this has been a great experience. I'll do this whenever you want. All right, man. Sounds good. I'm going to take you up on that. Done. Thanks, Dennis. Good stuff, man. That was well. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Mudgill podcast. You can find the corresponding video to this podcast on my YouTube channel and on Instagram TV, where you can find me at dr underscore mudgill. Let's get it. Let's go.